But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Let us pray. Risen Jesus, it is only by your spirit that our our unbelief can be overcome. It is only by encountering you, the real risen you, by your spirit, that our unbelief can be overcome and our hearts can be open to what you desire to be to us. So we ask you to be in our midst this morning, opening hearts and minds to all that you, sovereign Lord, have to speak to us. In your precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Oh, happy morn. I'm just so happy. We had a vigil candlelight service at 630 this morning and welcomed the two uh, newest members into Christ Church. And it was glorious. And we made a mess with water. And it was lovely. I'm so happy you're here. For those of you visiting uh, with us today, welcome. There's really only two types of people in the world when it comes down to it. Those who believe in miracles and those who don't. There are people like me who obviously have staked their lives on the belief that Jesus was born of a virgin, raised from the dead, and is alive today and is working in the world by his Holy Spirit. And there are people like the famous, well-known atheist biologist Richard Dawkins, who says things like this. The virgin birth, the resurrection, the raising of Lazarus, Even the Old Testament miracles all are freely used for religious propaganda, and they are very effective with an audience of unsophisticates and children. I practice that. No disrespect to Richard Dawkins. I I love him. (laughs) I've heard many of my unbelieving friends say things like, I'll believe in God when he gives some evidence of his existence. And I've always wanted to say, have you ever looked at your eyeball in the mirror? Do you understand, have any idea at what level of complexity it operates? And you think that it came about by unguided accidental forces? But I've always refrained. To tell you the truth, I believe God actively hides himself from people who think that he should be reduced to just another object of human knowledge. If your children woke up one day shortly after you had left the house and found that their daily clothes had been laid out on the bed, A five-course breakfast beautifully arranged on the table, a fresh pot of coffee finishing up, and their school lunches packed on the counter and said, I don't believe in mom and dad. They need to give us some evidence of their existence. Would you be eager to come plead with them to believe in you? No, you would say, those ungrateful little da-da-da-da-da-da. But you see, God is far more patient and gracious with our unbelief. But I digress. And I'm not going to spend our time today trying to make arguments for a supernatural worldview or the supernatural worldview of Christians because I don't believe that anyone gets argued into becoming a follower of Jesus. I have yet to see it happen, and I'll say more about that in just a minute. Rather, I'd like to look at our gospel reading that we just heard from and talk about how experience must shape our view of the miraculous, of the supernatural. So if you want to follow along in your bulletin there, if you brought a Bible, we're in Luke chapter 24 at the very beginning of the passage, beginning of the chapter. I love the mystique of this passage 
Did you notice that Jesus is hauntingly absent? I love that. It's Easter Sunday, and we don't even see or hear from Jesus in our gospel reading. There's something so authentic about this narrative. There's a number of reasons that I'm going to share. But one reason is that if it was made up, and they just wanted to glorify Jesus as some sort of mythological hero that they believed in, don't you think they would have portrayed him when they got to the tomb, like standing on top of it and glowing, like, ta-da, it's me, Jesus, I'm risen from the dead. But they don't. They simply find an empty tomb. There's a group of women who come to anoint his body with spices because, you know, stinkage and stuff. And it's also an act of honoring the person. Now, the day before, they watched him get crucified. And if you see that happen, you know, without a shadow of a doubt in your mind, what the outcome is. Years ago, the American Medical Association put out a scientific journal article on the crucifixion of Jesus. It was a deep study into ancient uh, Roman crucifixion passages and stated that it would have been impossible for Jesus to have survived his crucifixion on the cross. The American Medical Association put that out. It's very interesting. So the, the women disciples, the women followers of Jesus, they come fully expecting to find a lifeless corpse. And here's what Luke tells us. Here's the story. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body. Strange. Strange. While they were perplexed about this, Suddenly, two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. Now, these are not just regular old men. These are figures uh, sent from the heavenly realms, and this is, this is how we know that. Look at the reaction of the women. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. This just seems like a message that Jesus said over and over and over to his followers and they just they just didn't get it. And now the women are going, oh, yeah, that's right. He did say something about that, didn't he? And so the women return from the tomb and they tell the other 11 disciples. Now, of course, there's not 12 anymore because Judas has gone off and done his betrayal. They tell the 11 disciples and to all the rest. Now, Luke tells us who, who this group of women were. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. Now, this is really, really interesting uh, fact of history, and it's one of the reasons that a lot of Bible scholars would say that this authenticates the Luke's narrative is because in an ancient patriarchal society like the first century, um, the testimony of women was not considered to be valid, right? And so if you were trying to fabricate a tale to glorify the religious story that you believed in, you would not put in a... a, a, a an embarrassing detail that women would tell the story first. 
Now, I love this because don't you love how God vindicates women and uses them uh, in such an unconventional way, even in the first uh, century when it was a patriarchal society? I love it. And now the women go and they tell the disciples. Now, you would also expect that this, if this was an inauthentic account, that they would go back and tell the disciples, who of course are a part of putting these stories together, and they would want to make themselves look good, and so they would say, yeah, we knew it. He was going to rise from the dead. We're going to go and check it out. He's going to be here any minute, right? That's what you would say if you really wanted to convince people that this story was true and you didn't want to embarrass yourself. But listen to the detail that Luke's, Luke gives us. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Honesty. It's an honest detail in the historical narrative. You see, I said earlier there are only two types of people, but there's really actually another kind of person, and it's where some of us in this room fall today. There are some people who are intellectually open to the supernatural, intellectually open even to the risen Jesus, but have not yet experienced him for themselves. The disciples of Jesus who walked with him for three years did not believe, even after hearing him talk about it repeatedly. That he had been raised. They did not believe. Can you blame the disciples? If you see someone die a gruesome death, like by crucifixion, you have no expectations of them coming back to life. You see, what needed to happen was that they had to experience him for themselves to come to believe. And Jesus begins to appear to them throughout the next couple of days. And they begin to believe. But I want to read you a story about one of the disciples who really, really struggled with his unbelief. It comes from John's Gospel, chapter 20. It says this, But Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails in my hands in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then, I love this, he he addresses Thomas right away because he knows our hearts. He addresses Thomas immediately, and he says to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Listen to what Jesus says to Thomas. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Powerful. You see, there's a need to experience Jesus, to believe in him, to know him, to hand your life over to him. And the way that that happens for us today is in our heart through a trusting faith that hands things over to him and is open to receive his spirit into our lives. You see, the role of reason, and I am not anti-reason, I am pro-reason, but the role of reason is limited. Blaise Pascal, 17th century philosopher, very, very well known, said this, and he loved reason, but he said this, the heart 
has its reasons which reason knows nothing of. You see, you can't experience Jesus until you actually open the doors of your heart to his voice. And some of you are hearing it and feeling it today. How many of you have been on a first date? First date, yeah. Some of those first dates led to the, you getting married and, and being with that person all your life. What do you do on a first date? You talk for hours and maybe hours and hours over drinks and dinner. You ask questions. You get to know the facts about the person. It's a reason-based conversation, more or less. And then you're taking a walk, a stroll through the downtown city in the cool of the evening. And there's that mystical moment when they reach out and grab your hand to hold it. And you're not in the realm of reason anymore. Your heart begins to palpitate because it's opened up. And you're not rationally analyzing the facts You're in this moment where something is happening in your heart that can't totally be explained by reason. You see, it's because we're not brains on a stick. We are heart and soul as well. You see, it's kind of like that. When when the love of God grabs your heart in the person of his son, you let go of the rational analysis and you open yourself in faith to the overwhelming an inexplicable experience of divine love. And you don't stop using reason to explore difficult questions, but you realize that there's a deeper part of you with desires and longings that could only be answered by something or someone who you cannot analyze, but to whom you can only yield and surrender. You know, it gets exhausting running from the voice of the Lord. There was a very well-known journalist in the 20th century, a BBC journalist named Malcolm Muggeridge, who uh, ran from the Lord for most of his life until he was in his 70s. And his words have always, these words of his have always struck me. And when I first became a Christian, I was reading one of his books. And it just, these words brought me to tears because it described my own journey of running from the Lord. And he says this, However far and fast I've run, still over my shoulder I'd catch a glimpse of you on the horizon and then run faster and farther than ever, thinking triumphantly, now I've escaped. But no, there you were, coming after me. Very well, I'd decide. If I can't get away by running, I'll shut my eyes and ears and not see or hear you. No good. One sees and hears you, not with the eyes and ears, but inwardly with the soul, whose faculties can never be quite put out, however gorged, stupefied, and ego-inflated we may become. Now I can flee no further. I fall. Mercy. Because it was so way through that sobbing at my baptism service ten years ago. Because it was so real to me. It was my experience. Some of you have experienced Jesus at some point in the past, maybe at church camp or in the quiet of your bedroom at night, and maybe the cares of your life have kind of taken you away from him, and there's a great distance that you're, you're deeply aware of. And, and some of you maybe have never actually known him beyond an intellectual idea and are feeling a quiet voice down in your heart, your inner person trying to get your attention. That's Jesus. You can be sure of it. 
You see, friends, we all stand here today and the empty tomb confronts us. And you can't leave this place indifferent because it was either empty or it wasn't. And the question for us is how will we respond to it? How will we respond to it? You will either say the tomb is empty and that means he is the risen Lord of heaven and earth and my, my, it is worth giving my life to him to know him for all of eternity. Or you will turn your back and say, no, I can't do it. I love my life too much. You can't remain neutral when you're staring into the face of the empty tomb. And, and some of us here today need to give our lives back over to Jesus. And some of us, maybe for the first time. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing. We're going to sing because worship is the only proper response to the empty tomb of Jesus. Because it means he sits glorified on his throne in heaven. And he desires to hear the songs of his beloved children. So I want to invite you to stand up. We're going to pray and then we're going to sing. But I'd like to just open us with prayer first. Jesus, the reality is the tomb's still empty today. And your desire is to bring many more children into glory, into life with you. Uh, but Lord, we, do, we don't do that of our own will. We have to only yield and surrender to you. So we ask that you'd send your spirit through this place as we sing and that you would bring yieldedness and surrender to each and every heart. That every person who's wrestling in this place today with hopelessness, depression, anxiety, fear would walk out through those red doors rejoicing in the power of your Holy Spirit, risen Lord. So we invite you into this place. We ask you to receive our prayers and our songs today. We celebrate you, Lord, and we bless your name. Amen.